0: to be here. I hope you all had a wonderful week. It's nice to be able to come together on the Sabbath. The topic that I have today, I feel a little funny about, and I'm hoping you all will give me a little bit of leeway. There's an element of it that I'm a little bit nervous about, and I'll try to mention that when when I get there. If you'll turn to Isaiah 58. Isaiah 58. We see a strong statement right there in verse 1. Isaiah 58 verse 1, cry aloud, spare not. In my New King James Bible, they have a footnote there, the translators, and they say that could be translated, do not hold back. Cry aloud, spare not, do not hold back says, lift up your voice like a trumpet. Tell my people their transgression and the house of Jacob their sins. That is a part of our commission. If any of us are uncomfortable doing that, we have found the wrong church. We need to go find some other church because we understand this is an expectation from God. Sometimes people will ask us, oh, why do y'all talk about this or why do you talk about that? Because this verse is in the Bible amongst many others. Isn't it good news? Yes, but if you look at what the apostles talked about, they talked about the things to come. There are things to come between now and the inauguration of everything that good news represents. This is part of our message. So we have to cry aloud, we have to spare not, and we're not able to hold back. To do less than that is to fall short of what God expects us to do. And in terms of telling people about their sins, that includes doing so in a world where people don't even understand what sin is anymore. Even the word sin seems archaic. Actually, in the coming Living Church news that Mr. Ames referred to, We have an article by Mr. Rod McNair called A World Confused About Sin. It won't be stapled like this. Yours should actually look nice. But anyway, my copy is stapled. Uh, A World Confused About Sin. And he talks about the fact that the world doesn't understand what sin is. One of the blessings of the feast, believe it or not, a crucial and necessary blessing, is it will teach the world About what sin is. There's actually a Pew Research survey that he refers to in the article where they ask people questions Do you think it's sinful to have an abortion? Do you think it's sinful to engage in homosexual behavior? Do you think it's sinful to buy luxuries without giving to the poor? Or do you think it's sinful to live with a romantic partner outside of marriage? Uh, to use energy without considering the environment, etc. And you look and what you see is confusion. No one really knows what sin is anymore. And that's going to be part of our job. That's going to be part of your job. And we won't be able to do that job unless we're willing to be clear now. The kingdom and that time and the reign of Jesus Christ will not be a time when we are doing other than what we have done as a part of this body, the body of Jesus Christ. The body of Jesus Christ now will be doing what the body of Jesus Christ then is going to do, though clearly in smaller ways. You're not going to go take over a government or five cities or something right now if you try to do so. We don't know you, and we didn't send you, and we have no idea why you're doing that. But what we do then will be a reflection of the things we're doing now. Really, it's quite the opposite, rather. This time is a reflection, and that includes clarity about sin. And sin is getting so glaringly obvious in so many ways in the world today. So what is the end of all of that? Turn to Revelation 21. There's a point I want to make there in Revelation 21. I hope... You feel not good about sin. I could ask you, how do you see sin? Do you see it as something that's really not that bad, or it's just a matter of breaking some arbitrary rules, or do you see sin as what it really is? Something that damages lives, and something that represents the opposite of what God is, and that carries the weight of what such a statement means revelation chapter 21 what's the end result of these things revelation 21 starting in verse 7 god says he who overcomes shall inherit all things and i will be his god and he shall be my son but the cowardly unbelieving abominable murderers sexually immoral sorcerers idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone which is the second death Here's a point I want to make. We're talking about sin and how sin is terrible. And sin is ravaging the world right now. Their lives upended, torn apart, families shattered. But what it doesn't say here in verse 8, it doesn't say, but cowardice and disbelief and abominable concepts and murder itself and sexual immorality and sorcery and idolatry. It says, rather, the cowardly. The unbelieving, the abominable, murderers, those who are sexually immoral. It's people who are thrown into the lake of fire. It's not sins. It's human beings. And that should strike us in a certain way. Because I asked a moment ago, how do you see sin? I hope we see it rightly. I hope I see it rightly. But how do you see sinners? How do you see sinners? Because sometimes, and I know I might be speaking for myself in some of these things, it's it's hard, we all speak for ourselves, but I like to think, well I shouldn't like to think this because it's not positive, but I suspect rather that some of you can get caught up in the sort of thoughts that I can where I feel so vehement about some of these sins that I attach them in a very strong sort of way to the people who are committing them and that vehemence can sort of transfer to human beings. But the fact is, those human beings who are thrown into the lake of fire, they're going to be human beings who had mothers and fathers. They're going to be human beings who grew up through however many years of their life with hopes and dreams and purposes. And they're going to be human beings whom God sees as individuals he made in his own image. And that will not be a good day for him. It'll be a good day in the sense that the plan is wrapping up, that sin is coming to an end, but he takes no joy in the death of sinners. Punishing sin is not necessarily in and of itself what our Father looks forward to about what we'll have to do in the millennium. So I want to ask you, how do you see sinners? I want to ask myself today, how do I see sinners? Because God isn't just looking for a people looking forward to the fight to restore justice, etc. in the world. He's also looking for a people that have compassion in the same way that he has compassion. And I feel if we're willing to take the time to see sinners a little bit differently than sometimes we do. Then sometimes in the two-dimensional way that we do, it can aid us to perhaps see them with more compassion. So the title of the sermon today is, How Do You See Sinners? And I want to explore that together with you. I want to talk about hopefully some helpful perspectives on sin and sinners. And then maybe even address some specific examples that, at least, I, again, I can say I found challenging personally. They may not be challenging for you, but they were challenging for me. And I'll be giving your names. So I'll be naming you specifically. I'm just kidding. It's not about you. Uh, it's about general sins. It's not not about specifics. Because I'm not going to name you because I don't want you to name me. So let's all agree that uh, we'll, we'll keep names out of it. Deuteronomy chapter 30. If you would turn to Deuteronomy chapter 30. And perhaps I qualify too much in the message today, I'll try to keep that in mind. But I do want to make sure that none of this, this, is the part that made me nervous, none of this comes across like we should be weak about sin. That we should somehow be vague about sin, that we should be unclear about sin. And that sin isn't a choice, that it's not someone's fault, that there isn't blame, that there isn't guilt. All of those things are true. We're not talking about watering down The idea of sin. In fact, at least I believe that in seeing sinners rightly, it actually heightens that sense of revulsion about what sin is. In Deuteronomy 30, it's made very plain to Israel by God through Moses, of course, using Moses. Deuteronomy chapter 30 and verse 11. He says, For this commandment which I command you today is not too mysterious for you, nor is it far off. It's not in heaven that you should say, well, who will ascend into heaven for us and bring it to us that we may hear and do it? Nor is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us that we may hear and do it? He says, rather, verse 14, the word is very near you in your mouth and in your heart that you may do it. He's saying, Israel, you have no excuse. No people in history could have been physically accommodated and equipped better than you to understand sin and to avoid it there's no excuse for israel and he says in verse 15 see i have set before you today life and good death and evil he makes it as stark as he can Pairing it in these absolute opposites, no gray areas, and makes it clear he's talking about a choice. He's talking about a choice. He says in verse 19, I call heaven and earth as witnesses today against you that I've set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life. It presumes that we have a choice. Choose life that both you and your descendants may live. Now, I bring this up because it's easy sometimes, at least, again, easy for me, to take some of these statements and make them a little too individual. Let me, let me try to explain what I'm saying. That it, because he was talking to a people. He was talking about a society that was being initiated. Israel as a people. If you look up earlier in verse 17... He says, but if your heart, again, he's talking to all of Israel, but if your heart turns away so you do not hear and are drawn away and worship other gods and serve them, I announce to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not prolong your days in the land which you cross over the Jordan to go in and possess. He's speaking to a civilization. He's speaking to the nation of Israel. And even though there are definitely some individual applications in these things. After all, a nation can't simply choose life or death. It's the individuals in the nation that have to choose that. A nation as an abstract entity doesn't experience the cursings. It's the individual people who experience the cursings. But that said, there's a corporate quality to all of this. It comes up sometimes, for instance, with the the commandment with promise. If you know the commandment with promise, it's about honoring your father and mother. Honor your father and mother that it may go well with you. Right, That you may be long in the land that the eternal is giving you. And sometimes we will interpret that to mean if you obey your mother and father, you are promised you will live a long life. And we have to be careful about how we say that. Because it is true that if you obey your mother and father, the odds are that you live a long life are much better. I speak actuarially speaking. I could put tape on my glasses and say, as an actuary, I would say if you obey your father and mother, you're much more likely to live a long and happy life. And so that is true. And it's important that we communicate that. But that was a corporate promise. And I think all of us, or at least a lot of us, can think of more than one young faithful person who was cut short in life. Does that mean the promise didn't apply? No, it means individually there's a lot going on. And God is working individual plans. And we have to be careful sometimes with how we communicate those things. But corporately, what he's saying absolutely applies. But it wouldn't always be felt immediately. Sometimes these kinds of sins pile up over time. Their their problems, their damage accumulates over time. So that the final effects aren't felt for generations but they're always felt. The bill always comes due. So even though he's speaking corporately, the action happens individually. The, app and the action happens, the rubber meets the road with each of us individually. And when you zoom in on individuals, things get complicated. In fact, uh, turn to Psalm 64. Psalm 64. And I'll, I'll, I'll fess up. The context of Psalm 64 is talking about bad dudes. Or gals. I'm not trying to be gender specific. It's talking about people doing bad things and how they think and how they plot. And I will say, depending on the translation you look, it's you look at it, it's it's translated different ways in lots of places. I do like the New King James translation. The translation they use here in Psalm sixty four is the most consistent I've seen in other translations. But I do believe, whether this is the actual translation or not, I do believe it's still a true principle, which I'm grateful to understand. In Psalm 64, talking about bad people doing bad things, if you take a look in verse 6. Psalm 64, whoops, and verse 6. It speaks, they, have, uh, they devise iniquities. Oh, we've perfected a shrewd scheme. And then you see this statement, both the inward thought and the heart of man are deep. Do you believe people are deep and complicated? We often don't. Again, I often don't. It's so I'm so tempted and it's so easy to want to put people in boxes so that I can label it and I can know this is what this person is. is, Everything I need to know about this person is the label on the box. I don't have to know anything about their past. I don't need to know anything about their circumstances because I've got the label on the box. Or it's two-dimensional and I've got the sheet. It's a flat, two-dimensional sheet, and I can read it. And I, I see everything I need to know. It's simple. Maybe it's an index card, in fact. But the fact is, people are deep, and we're complicated. And you do see that reflected in the Bible. If you turn to Romans chapter 7, one of the most encouraging chapters for me personally, Romans chapter 7, though I feel to some extent one that may have been difficult for Paul to To write, to a certain extent, Romans chapter 7. No one likes to get in front of a bunch of people and admit their weaknesses. Well, some people do. Those are really interesting people. But most people, especially guys, certainly don't. Uh, You want to be strong. You want to appear strong. You don't want, especially if you're in the ministry, believe me, you don't want your weaknesses to become other people's excuses. And that's a real burden. It's an appropriate burden. I'm not saying it's a wrong burden. But it is a burden. But Paul really opens up, and he's very honest here. And we're not going to read all of it. That would take more time than we need. But he talks about his own struggle. And we could just jump right to verse 15 and read that. He's talking about how he wants to do good and doesn't always do it. Verse 15, Paul says of Romans 7, verse 15, For what I am doing, I do not understand. For what I will to do, that I do not practice. But what I hate, that I do. He looks at the life he wants to live. He looks at the life the scriptures typify. And he strives to do that. And I dare say he's not saying, I never do the right thing. The other day I was going to preach in Antiochus and I kicked a puppy. I don't think he's saying that. He's not being that kind of extreme. He's just being up front. In fact, if you listen to what he says, surely everyone here, surely every single human being in this room can identify with that. And think there are times when I know, I know, I know what I should do. And I just don't. And it's almost like I'm sitting there like a third party thinking, why aren't you doing the thing you know you're supposed to do? Or vice versa. There's something you shouldn't do. And next thing you know, you done did it. You done did it. And Paul is identifying with that. He's not giving into it. That's part of what identifies the Christian walk is you're not just walking, you're fighting, you're struggling, you're in it, your gloves are on, you're a part of the match, you're engaged. This is Paul being engaged. And what we're blessed to know is he has the solution there, right? He talks about that in verse 24, o wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death?' I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, with the mind, I myself serve the law of sin, but with my, sorry, the law of God, sorry, the law of God, but with my flesh, the law of sin. And then you have chapter 8, and it talks about what it means to have God's Spirit, and the difference that makes in our lives, and how it's able to aid in the struggle, though it cannot aid if there is no, if there is no struggle. But human beings are complicated. One of my favorite statements of complication is in uh, Mark. Mark chapter... 9 I don't turn there because I don't know the right verse. And don't look for it. It's a sermon. Pay attention. But note it for later. It's in Mark chapter 9 where a man comes to Jesus Christ with his possessed son. And he's got a a, a deaf and dumb spirit. And he's always throwing himself into fire, etc. And the man is desperate. He's desperate for help. And he asks the Messiah for help. Please get rid of this demon. And Jesus would respond, it's, if you believe, it's possible. Do you believe that this can be done? And the man answers in this amazingly short statement that means so much to me. He says, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. The math degree in me says, well, that's contradictory. You know, that doesn't that doesn't make any sense. I believe, but help my unbelief. But the part of me that's still living life and driving around town, and craving Cheetos, and all the rest, that real person gets that statement. Because we're complicated. Right? There's times when our belief is strong, and we just feel like we're on top of the world, and it's us and God. And other times, doubt comes in and creeps in in different circumstances, and we're complicated. Well, Paul talked there how he had the solution. That solution is in Jesus Christ. That solution is in having God's Spirit. The relationship that grows from that, the other law that goes into place. I won't take the time to talk about that here because it's not part of the point, but I encourage you to take a look at a sermon by Mr. Rod King. I didn't look up the number, but he talked about the third law. That's a wonderful sermon. Uh, I do encourage you to go find it at lcg.org. But here's the key, even though we have the solution, we have access to it, Paul had it. The vast majority of the world doesn't. They're in the Romans 7 struggle if they know enough to even struggle at all. And they don't know. And they don't have that. They're living in the presence of ravenous sin often without an explanation or an understanding of what to do. And that sin is ravenous is important to understand. If you'll jump to Genesis chapter 4, we actually see one of the first discussions of the nature of sin, and it comes from God. Actually, the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ, the one whose life would be spent in paying the penalty to solve the problem. Genesis chapter 4, we have the tale of Cain and Abel. And Abel's offering was not accepted. And Abel, sorry, Cain's offering was not accepted. Abel's offering was accepted. And it bothered Cain. And it was for cause. We don't need to go into the details. It's an interesting study if if you want to do that sometime. But regardless, it was for cause. And so God talks to Cain. He notices his countenance is down. He notices that he's in a wrong attitude. Not an attitude of trying to make things right but an attitude of resentment and bitterness. And he talks to him. And he says, we'll start in verse 6 of Genesis 4. God says, so, so the Eternal said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door. And its desire is for you. But you should rule over it the picture here is of an animal of a sort. That sin is lying at your door like a predator, claws at the ready, in a pouncing position, waiting for opportunity. It says its desire is for you. In fact, it's interesting. The, the Hebrew word there for desire is the same of what it says for the woman in Genesis three: that your desire will be for your husband. He's personifying sin. Sin is not a person, though it is interesting that the best representation of sin as a person would be Satan, the devil, who is given over to it, and who is also pictured as a ravenous lion, seeking whom he may devour. It is a blessing. To be in the beautiful walled garden of God's truth. And to have a century more powerful than we can imagine at that wall. Keeping that at bay. While we're seeking not to be so stupid as to invite him in on our own. Here and there. But the rest of the world isn't in there. They're out there. Where the lion roams freely. And where it's crouching at every door. One of the truths of God that if you haven't proven it for yourself, it's a worthwhile thing to do is that God isn't calling the whole world at this time. Take a note of John 6:44. Take a note of John 6:65. 6, Look those up later if you've never done that before. I know for me when God was bringing me into the truth, it was amazing to understand that. Because I couldn't understand why do all these people disagree? Why can't anyone agree about what Jesus Christ says and what the Bible says? And then kind of find out I was wrong too. And then out I can't take credit for even figuring it out. I like to think I'm a smart guy. So, well, no, you're one of the dummies. That's why I'm calling you. Uh, I didn't, didn't get to take credit for that because God opened my mind. And if it were not for that mercy, there'd be little difference between me and the others. There's a balance in seeing the nature of sin but recognizing it's taking place and it's reigning in what Mr. Armstrong called frequently in that powerful metaphor, a world held captive. I loved that phrase the first time I saw it because it explained so much about the world to me. That they live in a world held captive. And I can thank God that I've been freed, but I need to recognize they haven't. And how does that affect how I view them and the choices they make? and if you turn to isaiah 61 we'll read the full passage part of which jesus christ referred to when he was asked to read in the synagogue isaiah 61 relating to his commission he read the first part that applied at that time the entire part the entire portion here certainly applies to the entirety of his mission which has yet to be Continued in that special way that it will when he returns to earth. In Isaiah 61. Starting in verse 1. 61, Isaiah 61 to verse 1. The spirit of the Lord eternal is upon me. Because the eternal has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, To proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound to proclaim the acceptable year of the eternal and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn, to console those who mourn in Zion, to give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they may be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the eternal, that he may be glorified. Now, we're not saying that any of those people couldn't be suffering for sin. Certainly so. Jesus Christ may have said, the poor you always have with you. And there are people, you may find it hard to believe in America, but it does happen, that are poor through literally nothing they could have done. It does happen. Well, it's a good thing they're in America. They can get that fixed really straight. You haven't talked to enough poor people if you think that's the case. Now, yes, there are people that have created their own poverty. Frankly, I've worked very hard at it to establish that and maintain it for a good long time. But there are other people, because this is the devil's world, that were just simply exposed to time and chance. And it's interesting, he doesn't really differentiate here. He doesn't talk about, "I, I came to preach good tidings to the poor, but only those who really didn't deserve poverty. There's a compassion that's expressed in this statement. It's not that he doesn't care about the rich. He certainly does. i about to say I'm grateful, but it doesn't impact me. <laughs> uh, he does care about all of us, right? He cares about those who are captive, those who are not captive. He cares about those in hard times or good times. But in particular, it's the poor, it's the brokenhearted, it's the captives, it's those who are bound that need that encouragement. And Jesus Christ saw it as a part of what he was doing. Look at the implication of those things. It's subtle. But notice there's no finger pointing. And you know in the Bible, we've gone through those verses, God is very clear about the fault of sin. And that it's people's choices. And we saw, Moses said, choose life. There are choices. We're not saying there's not choices. No one must sin. It is not required of anyone. And none of us get to put off our guilt. But at the same time, that's part of the lesson of atonement also that's coming up. It's wonderful to see these things coming in the fall holidays. And let me use this as an opportunity to advertise another article in the Living Church News by Mr. Peter Nathan titled A Tale of Two Goats. Because one of the lessons of atonement is, you know what? I'm sorry, but you are responsible for your sin. There is a goat that is slain and blood is shed because without the shedding of blood there is no remission of sins. You and I have sinned and we need that death to cover our sins. But there's also the second goat picturing Satan the devil because God has woven into the holy days a recognition that the devil has his part to play. He's made sure we don't miss that lesson. It was actually one of the things that helped bring me into the truth. You look at Revelation 20, you look at the timing of the events, you look at the holy day, and you think, God, you're a genius. I know it sounds dumb saying it, God, because I'm me and you're you, but God, you're a genius. It was one of those things God used to bring me in because it was just so amazingly obvious. The devil does have his part to play. Yes, you and I are guilty. But it doesn't mean the devil didn't have his part to play. It doesn't mean that we're not under oppression In this world, in that sense. And what he's talking to in verse 1 are those who feel that oppression, those who feel they are captives, those who feel they are bound. That he is coming to open the prison, that he is coming to free those people. And that's part of how God sees sinners, not just as a bunch of guilty people constantly doing the wrong thing, that he can't wait to send his son, Jesus Christ, to this earth to make sure they're good and punished. But to come and open the door for them for the first time. To take the binds off their hands and off their feet. And have them feel for the first time what it means to be free. And that's a key part of how he sees sinners. And how Christ wants his bride to see sinners. Because he wants us in the family business. And he wants us to work by his side. an example to help bring this home. And I'll use this one specific example before I pick on three particular sins. It was a clip I saw of some Palestinians. I may have used this example before. If I have, I apologize for using it. I only have four examples and I tend to use them a whole lot. But let me just say I'm very, and many of us are, I know we've talked a lot. We're very sympathetic to the nation of Israel. That is the physical, current, political nation of Israel and the Jews who live there and what they constantly have to put up with. Surrounded by people who say they want to shove them into the sea and having people actually launch rockets into their cities meanwhile being blamed for that somehow. Uh, It's crazy. And many of us sympathize with the circumstance they're in. And rightfully so. And so when I see some railing against somehow the injustices of the Jews that are there, I admit, I get all worked up. I instantly don't like that person on television. Which is, it's not necessarily the right reaction, but I want to I fess up. My reaction isn't good when I see someone railing and saying these things that are just seem hideously irrational. Like just purposely driving the hate train, hoping it's going to hit their target. Who's tied up at the end of the tracks. But then I saw this video, and it was... I I didn't understand it at first. I watched it first not knowing what they were saying because they were uh, speaking Arabic. But it was a Sesame Street... Well, it wasn't actually Sesame Street. It was clear Big Bird was kind of purple or red and the rest. It It was a Sesame Street knockoff. It was... Maybe Sesame Lane, right? It it wasn't Sesame Street. There was some other country where they want to make a children's show. And and it it shows the puppets and the people in costumes and the little children, maybe three, four, five, six, seven years old, just these tiny, tiny, not even preteens. They probably are mini campers uh, at a preteen camp. They were there. And they're showing them a video. And you don't hear the translation, but you see a little girl and she jumps up and, and she's so excited and she's cute i mean she she could be sitting here and we, we just think she was one of ours i mean she just she's cute long hair you know just a girly girl right but then you watch it again and it put the translation of the arabic and she's standing up and chanting i want to die in the streets of jerusalem let israel run with the blood of our martyrs let us you know kill jews for 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 everyone they have but it was it was the most violent hateful things i had read out of an adult let alone out of the mouth of a child. It was a propaganda program, training children from the tiniest of ages to feel that way about other human beings. And so here's what I want to ask. What do we think about a child like that? Now that child would probably be in her mid-twenties, perhaps, based on rough, my best guess on the time I saw the video. If that had been her upbringing, and that had been her life, and that had been her culture, that had been her surroundings for two more decades, what, do you, what would you expect from a child like that? What kind of attitude would you expect from a child like that, now an adult? What would you expect them to do at a border wall with rocks, or guns, or Molotov cocktails? And I've appreciated that because it helps me look at that news footage differently. I wish I could say it consistently helped me look at that kind of news footage differently, and it doesn't, and I I freely admit that. But more often than I would have without it, I don't just see a bunch of hateful people. I see people that have been programmed by Satan the devil to ruin the world. And I see people cast in the image of God whom he longs to send his son and save. How do we see sinners? Let me focus on three specific areas of sin. And I've picked them because they're particularly visceral for me. If they're not visceral for you, well, let me know your favorite sins. And we could talk about that, right? Or the ones that, that strike you differently, but, but these struck me. And so they were a good exercise for me. And I feel like I've talked to enough people to know that, that these might be helpful to consider. Let's start with abortion. Let's start with abortion. And let's be up front. Abortion is murder. Uh, Turn to Genesis chapter 9, just for the principle. Genesis chapter 9, and verse 6. This is after the flood. God is explaining to Noah how things are going to be, and he says in verse 6 of Genesis 9, Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God... He made man. In the image of God, he made man. Mankind is something different. Humanity is something different. We are not animals. If there's there's anyone here who believes in that lie, please, by all means, talk with one of us. Talk with somebody. Because the devil is corrupting the entire world with that kind of garbage thinking. We are not animals it means something for a life to be simply animal life or plant life or to be human life. And so when you consider abortion from that perspective, it really is something vile. It is taking among the most innocent lives we can. Even King David, in the worst of his circumstances, where he came to the point of actually murdering a man to try to hide his own adultery, it's fascinating. He never, choose, never chose to try to abort the child. And they had abortifacients back then. You can look up the history. They they knew herbs. They knew various things that would actually cause an abortion. And yet in all of that, it's like in all of his lowness, in all of his sin and his desperation, to me it's interesting that what could have been the simplest act was a line that was not even considered. Because there was something about that that just simply was not something he could consider even in the state in which he was at the time. Abortion is a sin. It's a sin just like any other murder. And those who get abortions, those who perform abortions, those who enable abortions, those who fight to maintain the freest access to abortion possible, are guilty of sin. I say that because I don't want any of this to be interpreted like we're watering something down. I'm not trying to water anything down. Sin is sin. But before we get caught up in just simply seeing every woman who chooses to have an abortion as equivalent to a death row murder inmate, there are some things that should be considered. There was a 2017 study published by the Journal of American Physicians and Surgeons and found, for instance, that of women who had abortions. And there, there was a narrowing of the study. There's a reason it's not as applicable as it could be. I'll get to that. But they, of the, the pool they studied, which was women who were seeking some kind of counseling after abortions and actually talking to a professional of some sort. Under 70, just under 74% of women who had abortions had felt pressured to do so. Uh, pressured by parents, by boyfriends, by husbands, uh, by others. Just over 58% said they only did the abortion to make someone else happy. 28.4% said they did it out of fear of being abandoned by their boyfriend or husband if they didn't do it. 67.5% said it was one of the hardest single decisions they had ever made in their lives. And 66%, about two-thirds said they knew in their hearts they were making a mistake even as they did it. Now again, the study involved women who are seeking counseling, so it's not necessarily representative of everyone. But at the same time, I have seen other studies. I looked for those and had a harder time finding them. The numbers wouldn't be as high, but they would be in the same ballpark. When you look at that, what you see in some of these, frankly, girls getting abortions, for many of them, they're scared. They feel pressure from others, including their own parents. And they've been taught by their society. Don't worry about this. This is normal. This is fine. Don't listen to those people that say anything otherwise. In fact, what you're doing is probably a good thing. A good thing for this baby. And a good thing for you. Really, it's moral. You're doing the moral thing. And society betrays them in that way. You know, in Finland, Finland is very friendly to abortions. I mean, really, we're... we're, very friendly in this country to a certain extent, but not nearly in Finland. Very open, the law is very pleasing if you're an abortionist. Very, very open, very accepting. And in Finland, women who have an abortion have a suicide rate that is three times the general population afterwards. In fact, it's interesting, if you compare women who have an abortion to those who actually go through and have the child, the abortion rate of those who, sorry, the Suicide rate of those who had an abortion is six times greater. Somehow actually having the child lowers the abortion rate compared to the general population. A friend of mine who is a teacher and who's in the church told me a story once of one of his students. And there was a time when she missed some school to get an abortion. And he knew it, and some teachers knew it, but of course they're respecting privacy. They don't, they don't say, all the, all the other students just knew she was sick. It was pretty early in the pregnancy, and so they, they didn't reveal that knowledge. So the, the teachers kept it to themselves, but they had to be aware of what was going on. So he knew, but didn't say anything, of course. And eventually she came back, and she was recovered, and she was part of the class. It's a high school class. Well, time goes on, and as we all do. I know it was... My students knew they didn't have to learn math that day if they'd get me talking about religion or my family. So, uh, my wife. So they, they did that pretty often. And as we all do as teachers, you, you have a relationship with your students. You talk about things. And so he, ha- he has children and he's talking about his children and his wife. And unexpectedly, out of nowhere, that particular girl just stands up and runs from the room, just bawling. And he suspected he knew why. He certainly didn't, it wasn't on purpose. He felt bad. But, you know, he kind of left the class in control and, and, and went to go talk to her and just comfort her. And she was just inconsolable, just crying and crying and crying. And she was explaining to him and said that she didn't really want to do it, but her boyfriend wanted it and thought it would be fine. And her parents told her to do it. Her parents said, Sweetie, you don't want to ruin the rest of your life. There's nothing wrong with this. It's just a procedure, it's just a clump of cells. That's all it is. And she said, That's what they said, that's what they said, but I know I killed my baby. Our society is abusing these women. Doesn't mean it's not sin, it is sin. Can we approach sinners with a sense of compassion, understanding that this is a world that is designed to punish them by the one who is the ruler of this world? Because in every abortion, even if the one who survives doesn't understand, there really are two victims. Let's consider another one, homosexuality. also feel a visceral reaction to this as a sin. Let's make sure we're clear. Turn to Leviticus chapter 20. Leviticus chapter 20. And just make sure we're not in doubt. In today's world, you just can't presume anymore. There's so many things we used to take for granted That the world is cast in doubt in Leviticus chapter 20 and we'll just jump to verse 13. Leviticus 20 and verse 13. We read if a man lies with a male as he lies with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood shall be upon them. The world tries to twist this to say something other than it plainly says, which is homosexuality is a sin. In fact, let's jump to Romans chapter 1, again just to make sure we're clear, Romans chapter 1, and verse 26, Romans 1, 26 breaking in the middle of the thought paul says for this reason god gave them up to vile passions even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature likewise also the men leaving the natural use of the woman burned in their lust for one another men with men committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error which was due it says and even as they did not like to retain god in their knowledge god gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting let's be plain it's a sin It's debased. It's perverted. We need to reclaim the word perverted. It means there's something that's right, there's something that should be, there's something that's normal, and then there's a perversion of that. And that's what this is. It's sin beyond any doubt. And uh, we just mentioned in the announcements, if you get the news and prophecy, then you saw the note about the study that was published recently in Science, the journal, say Science Magazine, but really it's a very important journal and it's, it's easy to misunderstand the study. Uh, it says there's no gay gene. There's, there's no single gene that's just a, a switch that gets flipped, and suddenly you're a homosexual if you have that gene. It didn't say that there's not necessarily some genetic correlation, possibly. They found a lot of different markers that seem to be consistent with the homosexual population, but they found a lot of homosexuals that also had those markers and were not homosexual. So the idea that it's just purely some idea that you were born this way, quote-unquote, is just not tenable. Now that said, what if they did find one? Maybe there's a a bunch of DNA that when you look at it spells the word, I am so homosexual. You know, they see it right there in the DNA code. Well, I'd be honest, even then I don't think I would be surprised because we're in a world that's falling apart, right? Right? There are deformities and things that happen in our genes and in our brains all the time. But the key thing that people tend to miss is that doesn't make something moral or not sin. They've actually found genetic markers that indicate a tendency towards violence uh, and a vulnerability to alcoholism. That doesn't make either one of those things all of a sudden a moral stance that you can take and build a lifestyle around. It just means those people have a particular burden in that regard. But the study really was clear. There is nothing. And so if you read what they say, they say that, frankly, we have to be honest. Homosexuality is a human trait like a lot of others that contain, there might be influences that are genetic. There's certainly influences that are of the environment. And what they don't say, because scientists these days tend to skip it, is that there is choice involved in some way. Because they like to picture us as a bunch of machines that actually don't have any particular choice. But that said, though we do have choice... Are our choices influenced by things? Are there like, for instance, I really like macaroni and cheese. It is not just because it is a delectable food group all by itself. It is because my mother fed me macaroni and cheese pretty consistently back when I didn't like eating vegetables, and she would cave and make me macaroni and cheese instead. I came to like macaroni and cheese. So, I recognize it's not the perfect food, but I just like it so much. You know, uh, I like macaroni and cheese. The Bible itself says in Proverbs 22 to, that we need to raise children the way they should go. Why? Train up a child the way it should go so that when he's old, he will not depart from it. Doesn't that imply that you have an opportunity to make an impact on a child's life such that things become ingrained in them that they get trained in a certain way? If you didn't get to hear Mr. Jonathan McNair's Bible study on the topic, make sure you watch the DVD that he's, that Mr. Weston will be putting out in a video, I think on February 2nd, on the topic. We train children. But if you can train them for good, does it not make sense they can be trained for evil, and for wrong, and for self-harm? And certainly that's the case with a lot of things. In 2013, there was a report in the Archives of Sexual Behavior, that noted actually the results of a 2012 study establishing that abuse as a child, being abused as a child, increases the likelihood that the child will grow up with homosexual tendencies. Not a certainty. Not a certainty. I know a lot of people, sadly, that have been abused as children and they did not grow up to be homosexuals. However, in terms of contributing to that, it was a statistical fact. You'll see that denied but this is a standard research institution. And that was their conclusion. In fact, Free Republic reported way back in 2009 about the work of a couple of healthcare researchers, Cheryl Dobinson and Stuart Landers, and they noted a high prevalence of childhood abuse experienced by homosexuals and bisexual adults. In particular, Dobson's results showed that only 26% of the around not quite 1,000 bisexuals that she interviewed, only 26% had not experienced abuse as a child. Does that mean every single homosexual chooses to do that because they were abused? Does that mean somehow abuse forces someone to do that? No, those are choices. But we have to be careful when we say that these things are choices. Because they are. They are. We're in control of whether or not we sin. But in most cases, in my experience, when I talk with someone, it wasn't that one day they decided, they sat down and said, Hey, sweetheart, I'll be back to watch TV with you in a moment. I'm sitting here in the kitchen, and I think I'm about to decide to be a homosexual. They don't do that. It's not generally. Don't get me wrong. There are some other weird stories that are actually parallel that perhaps a little more closely, but it's not in so many cases that someone just made one singular decision that said, wow, I think for the rest of my life, I'm going to be a homosexual, but that doesn't mean choices weren't involved. Part of the challenge is when you try to trace back those choices, it's a chain of choices made in sequence over time. That's why it's so dangerous as I say a young person, but frankly, as an adult as well, because we can make a wrong choice and think, oh, well, that went fine. I got away with that only because it's not the single choice that makes the big impact. It's that choice and the fact that it leads to another choice, the fact that it leads to another choice. And the next thing you know, you're wondering how you got here you're oblivious because you can't you can't find how did i get on this path and you try to trace it back and you can't find it but it's there and for a lot of them again without the truth living in a world where sin is prowling like an animal where the devil is free to roam as a lion then often the choices made are between painful options it's pain in one direction It's pain in another direction. Which do I pick? We're blessed. Some of you, I know you have. Some of you, we've talked about those kinds of choices. Some of you, I just know because you're a living, breathing human being, you've had those kinds of choices. It's like the worst version of, uh, what was it? Uh, Not The Price is Right. What was Monty Hall? It was uh, let 's make a deal, and you have door you have uh, curtain number one, curtain number two, curtain number three, and behind every single one of them is something terrible, but at least what you and I have is a loving God who puts his arm around us and says, I know curtain number one looks awful, and i 'll be honest with you, it is, but we 're going through it together, and trust me it 's the right one. We have that. Do we appreciate that? Do we look forward to bringing that to a world? Because often their choices are nothing but blank curtains. Barely numbers on them. And they're seeking to avoid pain. It's still choices. It is choices. And often there's something telling them it's wrong. But all they know is this one, my mind says is wrong. That one seems to hurt. I'm going to do this one. There is accountability, but can we at least grow in some compassion and recognize that this world is not geared to serve them. It is geared to damage them. Just like it is geared to damage us. But we thankfully had a Savior who intervened. You know, if you look in... We won't turn there for the sake of time. If you look in First Corinthians chapter 6. Paul says, look, murderers, homosexuals, sodomites, fornicators. He goes, you know, you guys. Not y'all, but he said there to the First Corinthians. You guys. He says, you know, such were... Some of you. Because all of those labels being a murderer, fornicator, homosexual, sodomite none of those labels meant the person couldn't be called and that somehow the God of miracles could do nothing. And he was delighted to bring those people into his family and help them change and repent. Because Paul crucially uses the past tense word. Such were some of you. Because there was power to change in that. I haven't left myself too much more time. I want to go through this one quickly because this one does get me worked up a lot. I've kind of grown in the working up, so it's probably good that I not take too long in this one. And that is, and it's related, uh, transgender. Confusion. And for clarification, I'm not talking about those rare cases where there's actual physical deformity of some sort. I'm talking about someone who is truly a healthy man who thinks he is a woman. Or a truly healthy woman who thinks she is a man. Let me read an example I read back in 2007 in Newsweek. 2007. We're 12 years on from this. And this is news, Newsweek, a major publication describing the tale of a child they called M by its first initial to protect its privacy at the parents' request. This is the May 21st, 2007 Newsweek. It said, For parents like Colleen Vincente, 44, following a child's lead seems only natural. Her second child, M, Vincente asked to use an initial to protect the child's privacy, was born female. But as soon as she could talk, she insisted on wearing boys' clothes. Though M had plenty of dolls, she gravitated toward the boy things and soon wanted to shave off her hair. We went along with that, says Vincente. We figured it was a phase. One day when she was two and a half, M overheard her parents talking about talking her sorry, talking about her using female pronouns. And now the magazine switches at this point. Please understand this is still a girl, but I'm reading from the magazine. He said, no, I'm a him. You need to call me him. Vincente recalls. We were shocked. In his, again this is a girl, in his California preschool, M continued to insist that he was a boy and decided to change his name. Vincente and her husband John consulted a therapist who confirmed their instincts to let M guide them. Now M, uh, age nine, lives as a boy and most people have no idea he was born otherwise. The most important thing is to realize this is who your child is, Vincente says. That's a big step for a family, but it could be an even bigger one for the rest of the world. I would say 12 years ago, that was a prophetic statement, but of something truly terrible. Again, back to Proverbs 22 and verse 6, train up a child in the way it should go. And when it's old, it won't depart from it. Can you imagine right now, right now, it would be about 21 years old. Can you imagine encountering the truth and having a mind opened all of a sudden? Can you imagine the struggle that would be to try to undo two decades of programming when the Bible says foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child to have parents who instead embrace that and decide you're going to, you're not old enough to buy a beer, but we're going to let you decide whether you're a boy or a girl programmed for two decades it's astonishing not every case is that clear but it's interesting if you look in matthew chapter 7 we're not turn there in fact if you turn to luke chapter 9 we're just going to read two more passages but as you're turning to luke chapter 9 i want to remind you about matthew chapter 7 and the narrow path it's interesting what jesus christ says he says that the narrow path Is hard to find. He says there are few who find it. What he doesn't say is there are few who choose it. Now, admittedly, there are few who choose it, but he specifically says find, because in this world that is hard. The paths aren't clear. If you don't have God leading you by the hand, those paths are hard. In Luke chapter 9, By the way, it's Matthew 7, verses 13 and 14 for the narrow path. In Luke chapter 9, starting in verse 51. Luke 9 and verse 51. It says, Now it came to pass... When the time had come for him to be received up, that he stead, this is talking about Jesus Christ, that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem, and sent messengers before his face, and as they went, they entered a village of the Samaritans to prepare for him. But they did not receive him because his face was set for the journey to Jerusalem. So you're going to Jerusalem, we don't want you. You're going to Jerusalem? Then move on, Messiah guy. They rejected him. And the apostles were upset, in particular, someone to take some action. So some of you probably identify with uh, John and James here. Verse 54, when his disciples James and John saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them just as Elijah did? Now, you might think this is an overreaction. I got to say, you're probably right. Calling fire down to burn up an entire village. Let's all agree that's almost always an overreaction unless God has somehow uh, commanded you that this is what I want to do. But at the same time, we weren't there. We only got one little sentence that they rejected him. What did they say at the border? What was actually spoken? What was actually done? What offenses were, what insults were thrown? We don't know. So John and James, they want to take care of business. God, you want us to call down fire? People that reject you shall get burned up. And Jesus responds differently. Verse 55. It says, he turned and rebuked them and said, you do not know what manner of spirit you are of. For the son of man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went to another village. I, again, being honest, and I don't think this is wrong in and of itself, and if it is, I'm, I'm, I'm open to being chastised. Again, my wife's out of town, so I'm just kidding. She doesn't do a lot of that. I'm open to being chastised, but there is a satisfaction that I, I look forward to in the kingdom, knowing that we can take part in righting the world's wrongs, knowing that we can be the person that terrifies that guy that was going to rape someone in the dark until he soils himself and runs off screaming. Uh, I do look forward to that. I look forward to rescuing children from their abusers and providing, perhaps, a punishment, if that's appropriate. I look forward to being justice. In fact, when it, bringing justice, when God talks about punishing the world, He talks about how it's an honor for the saints to participate, if you read that in the Psalms. I didn't wish I'd written down the verse. In and of itself, it isn't necessarily wrong to look forward to finally being able to right all the injustices of the world and to punish the obstinate-minded and the hard-hearted and the abusive and the monsters that are out there that prey on others. In and of itself, it's not wrong. But as the fall holy days come, and we are literally thinking of the time when we literally will actually be there, when we're going to have that kind of power, Jesus Christ is looking at us as his bride and saying, which are they? Are they the ones that can't wait to call fire down from heaven and roast an entire village of people who don't know their right hand from their left? Or do they want to join me as the son of man who did not come to destroy men's lives? but to save them. Because the opportunity to save the world and to save sinners is what we're all getting ready to celebrate in a few days from now.